So access them through that QR code on your smartphone or tablet. I wanna read just a few verses here from Isaiah 62. This morning's message is called Transformed by the Delight of Christ. We're building upon some things that we touched on last week in our service. Isaiah 62, beginning in verse two. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse six, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Father, we ask for your spirit, a spirit of revelation, to touch our hearts, to touch our minds, even this morning. We ask you, Lord, for that quickening of your word, the word that gains entrance and access into our emotions as you speak over us, as you've declared this passage over this spiritual family time and time again. Would you remind us of the delight of the Lord, that you have called us Hephzibah, you have put your delight upon this people. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a moment of review, last week we talked about how the body of Christ is to be a transformational people, not just an informational people how the Lord longs to transform us and renew us as he is getting his bride ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. There's a day coming where the people of God, all of them, all of them across the earth, the body of Christ will be made ready for the coming of Jesus. She will be a bride that is prepared in love. She will be a bride that is clothed in meekness and humility and the garments of righteousness that are given to her through the cross will adorn her and the body of Christ will come into her greatest hour of glory and maturity and it's most evidenced in her love, not just her power, though she will walk in power. She will have a heart that is purified and tender, and she will be that voluntary lover in the day of power. Psalm 110 tells us that the Lord will raise up volunteers in the days of, her, in the days of power, in the days of the release of his judgments as he cleanses the earth of sin and wickedness. The Lord is going to have a people that have voluntarily said yes to him, and they've been made ready for him. The Lord will establish the first commandment in the first place. It's the premier desire on the heart of God to see his people love him in the way that he loves them. It's why he called it the first commandment. It's why he called it the great commandment because he wants to be loved with the same measure and fervency and passion and depth. He wants to be loved in that same way. That's what God wants from us. And the Lord's gonna transform his church. He's going to purify her. He is going to refine her. He is going to remove the spirit of compromise and dullness and apathy out of the heart of the church before he brings in the great harvest of souls. I believe that there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming. I believe that a great harvest of souls is coming in. There's already a harvest now. There's already a harvest of souls that are coming in now in the nations and it's only gonna increase in the days ahead and it's gonna be so great and so grand that the nets, meaning the infrastructures of the body of Christ and churches and buildings and 
and seats and resources are gonna be so stretched that they'll begin to break. Just like in that story of the fishermen when they threw their nets into the water at the command of Jesus and they pulled out so many fish that their nets began to break. That day is coming. But the Lord doesn't wanna release that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bring in those souls if they're joining a compromised, loveless church. He doesn't wanna bring them in to an environment where they're to learn the essentials of the faith and be disciplined, discipled in the word of God and the commands of scripture if the church isn't even walking in them herself. If she is not loving, the Lord's not gonna send those into our life because we will disciple them of the same spirit. We will re reproduce ourselves, and the Lord doesn't want to have a compromised church in the last days. We still contend for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We still contend for that great harvest of souls that come, and we contend that the love of God would be perfected and that the Holy Spirit would perfect what is lacking in us not just the church down the road. That's incredibly important that we take the same measure of critique that we use for the body of Christ over there, what, what those people say, what, what those people believe, and how wrong they are and how misinformed they are. You know, I've never seen a Christian get on Facebook and say, I am so deceived and compromised in my heart, God help me. It's always someone else. No one in their own mind is deceived and compromised until you go to the cross and you look at him and then you begin to realize just how selfish we are, just how petty we are, just how vile and evil we are when you see the picture of perfected love. And we must go to the cross again and again and again and we must be transformed and conformed to the image of the Son of Man, Jesus. Many people are settling to be simply an informational people, not a transformed people. God wants to transform his bride into the image of his Son, but many are content to just get information because with information and knowledge, our spirits become puffed up and we feel like we have a handle and we feel like we have a sense of control about what's going on. I said this last week to the shock of many. You know, I don't hold a geopolitical degree and political science or whatever it is that helps me figure out everything that's going on in the earth. I don't know. And if I needed to know, I think, I think the Lord would tell me. But I know what's before me. And the church has her way and her, her path, her mission before them and all the various assignments that she has in the diverse body of Christ. And we need to say yes to the Lord in a deep way in this hour. We need to walk in humility. And we need to not just be satisfied with more and more information. Because information is banging around out there left and right, it's coming through the radio. It's coming on social media. It's coming in our inboxes. It's coming in our mailboxes. It's coming all the time. We're being assaulted and informed, supposedly, about everything that's happening. And we're somehow supposed to make sense of it. But there's so much information. What you learn today is irrelevant tomorrow. And what you learn tomorrow is irrelevant the next day. And there are biblical truths that the body of Christ must anchor themselves in so as the storms and the waves of the sea and the tumult of the nations begins to rise and fall and rise and fall, there's an anchor that keeps her rooted in the mission that is before her. He says, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You shall be witnesses to me. You will disciple. You will make disciples in all the nations and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. To this spiritual family, he's called us, verse six, to be watchmen on the wall and give the Lord no rest day or night. It's a specific assignment before this spiritual family. And the Lord has these things in front of us and we can't allow the information to knock us off track and to knock us off course so that we become discouraged and we lose sight of the grander storyline of what the Lord is doing in the body of Christ and in us. 
I mean, we are the body of Christ, but. We cannot afford in this hour to live in the courts of the opinions of men. That was a phrase that I've heard or something the Lord highlighted to me this week. We're living, many live in the courts of the opinions of men. And we don't have to give our opinion on every single transpiring event. We don't have to do that. We can actually be quiet. We can actually go before the Lord in prayer. Most people aren't asking us for our opinions anyway, and yet we insist on continuing to give them. Our opinions often don't add or detract, and there's opinions that are just bubbling over left and right and information and who knows what and who's got the inside information and this is gonna happen and trying to make predictions and then trying to get them right and then trying to prove to everyone that we did get them right. Why? Where's the message? Where's the message behind all of the predictions? Because the prophetic witness that I see in Scripture, the sign, the wonder, the prediction, the word of knowledge, always had a message attached to it, and that message was always about returning to the first love. And so whether we have the information or the prediction, the message is always the same. God wants your heart. And he's not gonna relent. He's a bridegroom. He's not gonna let up on your life until he gets your heart. And he will apply the pressure, big, small, and all in between until he gets the body of Christ tuned into him and walking in the first love. If you don't have the first love and you die and stand before the Lord, what do you really have? If your heart isn't given to him, if your soul isn't committed to him and all of your ways committed to him, if you don't love him in that first and great commandment reality, what do you really have? We can have all the information. We can have the anointing. You can prophesy, cast out demons, heal the sick, predict who's gonna do this and what leader's gonna do that. You can make all the predictions, stand before him, and he says, what about your first love? I never knew you. Sobering words. Some people in the body of Christ, they, they connect with the subject of being transformed at the new birth, meaning as it pertains to their salvation. And yet they stop there. They don't realize the aching need for ongoing tra transformation that comes by a spirit of revelation. The transformation of our mind and our will and our emotions that we would be conformed to Christ's image. We're not trying to be the best version of us. We're not trying to block out all the haters and focus on us and get us time so that we can live our dreams and be the best version of us. Love it, that version of us is doomed to hell for eternity. Our call is to be transformed into a person, and that is the person of Christ. That is our beloved, and we're the bride, and we're, we're looking forward to that wedding day, and we're crying out, make me like you. I wanna love in the way that you loved. I wanna say what you say. I wanna feel what you feel. And we've gotta change the conversation. We've gotta change our inquiring, not just to things that inform us, but things that transform us. The spirit of revelation through the word of God. The key to transformation, it's no big secret. It's the subject of the emotions of God or the beauty of God or the knowledge of God. It's all the same kind of subject. The vast subject of his emotions it includes his joy over his people, his delight over his people, his affection for us, his glad, the glad heart of God over us and I wanna tell you that in the midst of days like these, it's very easy to set that aside and forget about those truths. To get caught in the storm of heated emotions. To read a headline and suddenly your anger is sparked. To get a notification on social media about what someone said or how they responded to you and all of a sudden you're in an all out war with them. And this vast subject, this glorious subject is the key to our transformation in this age and we've gotta get back 
not to new truths, but to old truths that transform our hearts, that renew us and give us the mind of Christ, that cause our hearts to overflow with love and adoration, that cause us to see ourselves in the way that God sees us so that we can see others in the way that God sees them. This verse was highlighted to me from Nehemiah 8.10 the other morning. You know it well, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's two ways to read this. It's either that when we encounter the Lord, we get joy, and that's strength, or it's the fact that God's joy, God's delight over us becomes the source of our strength. I'm arguing for the latter this morning. That the truths of the delight of God, the bridegroom God over his people will be the source of their strength in hours of trial, in hours of trouble, in hours of confusion, in hours of deception. God wants to strengthen his people so that they would be anchored. Why? So that the world will look at the church and go, how come these guys aren't freaking out? You know, there's stories of the Moravians as they're sailing to the new world across the Atlantic and there's this storm that's blowing, and the Moravians are worshiping and praising God in the midst of the storm. And people are scratching their heads going, what's wrong with those people? What's wrong with them? They're not panicked. They're not troubled. They're not angry. They're not attacking one another. They're not attacking me. They're at peace in the midst of the storm. Why? The delight of God has become the source of their strength. It's become their rock. They're unmovable. The circumstances of life, the circumstances of the culture, the circumstances that swirl around us don't remove their strength. It doesn't diminish their strength. Matter of fact, it highlights their strength so that Christians would be salt and light and an anchor and a refuge in the midst of evil days. transformed by the word of God. The Lord says in Isaiah 62 that we just read, you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name and you shall be called Hephzibah for the Lord delights in you. Hephzibah. I love this passage. This passage for me has been one of the most transformative truths for me personally. I'm not saying this for everybody. But in the word of God, this has been one of the most transformative passages of scripture in my entire life. It convinced me that God delighted in me, even in the midst of my weakness, even in the midst of my brokenness, even in the midst of my failure, even in the midst of my weak attempts to actually love God and to actually love people. This truth that he delights in us, that he rejoices over us, that he is glad over us, has a powerful and profound effect upon our life when we engage with it in a spirit of faith. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that we actually believe it. Do you know that? Have you ever had an argument with God about what's in the word of God? Well, you should. Because otherwise, you're probably just assuming that you just believe everything that's there. But if we really believed everything that's there, our mind, our will, and our emotions, our lives would be drastically different. And because it's not different, it shows us that in various ways, we disagree with the word of God. The Lord says, I'm gonna give you a new name. I'm gonna give you a new name. I'm gonna give the people, my people, a new name. And the new name means a new identity. It means a new way of relating to God because the posture has changed. It's changed to one of privilege. It's changed to one of access. It's changed to one of power. The new name, when God gives you a new name and speaks a new name over your life, it's not because he didn't like the sound of the old name, like it had a weird ring to it. It's because the Lord is inviting you and he's inviting his people into a deeper place of relating to him 
where these things change in their lives. Christ was anointed to give the earth a new name and a new identity in him. He's anointed to do it. So the anointing and the power to change the way that I relate to God isn't just by stirring up my faith and gritting my teeth and be like, I'm gonna change. No, a man was sent from heaven, who is God, Christ, with an anointing on his life to touch your heart, touch your life, and cause you to relate to his father in a brand new way. He's changed your name. He's changed your identity. You've passed from being a slave into being a son. You've passed from being forsaken by God to being Hephzibah, the delight of God. You no longer call God Baal, master, I'm here to serve you. But no, you call him Ishi, husband. You are my beloved one. The Lord changes the name so that we change the way in which we relate. The Lord has declared this over his people. It says that the mouth of the Lord, he emphasizes, I'm gonna give you a new name, and the mouth of the Lord has declared this, and we know, any student of the Bible knows that whatever God declares, it's going to happen. You can't change what has been declared by the Almighty. His word never returns void. Every time he opens his mouth, it happens. What the Lord has declared over the body of Christ, over you and me and the Baptist church down the road is that our name has been changed and there's a new way of relating to God, particularly the bridegroom God. What is the name? The name is Hephzibah. And it means this, that the Lord delights in you. And there are so few who actually believe with any type of consistency that God delights over them, that he actually looks at their life and enjoys who they are even in the midst of our immature and weak love. Even right now, God looks down at you and if you're redeemed and washed in the blood of Jesus, he delights over your life. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. The, the predominant feelings in his heart over the redeemed are ones of joy, gladness, delight. I mean, he gets excited when he looks at you. He loves you and he wants you. In 1995, Mike Bickle had a dream where the Lord said over this people and over this movement to specifically to call them Hephzibah, that the Lord would establish this way of relating to the bridegroom God as foundational to who we are as a people. That we would not relate to God out of a place of believing that we're forsaken by him, but that the Lord would cause us to be tenderized and, and tremble before him and to be loved and enjoyed by him. This is where our strength is. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. His delight over you will be your strength. The name Hephzibah establishes the identity of the people of God so that they relate to Christ with confidence and joy. That when we would go before him in our devotional time, day after day, week after week, that we would go in with a confident spirit and a heart of joy. Have you ever come into church or the prayer room? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever come into church or the prayer room feeling like a failure, feeling like you're coming up short in so hours or, or, or so many ways, and, and the worship team is going and, and they're worshiping God and you look over and everybody seems so happy. It's like they're all doing great with God. What the heck happened to me? What is wrong with me? We imagine that everyone around us is so radical and devoted and pure and free from addiction and shame and all this stuff that we're the only ones. And we sit there with our hands in our pockets until we work up the courage to just kind of like, we're not ready for this, you know? But we'll, we'll worship God like, okay. Or we'll sit down. We put ourselves in spiritual time out. 
Because we don't believe that God delights in us and that he rejoices over us. We don't believe that God is actually faithful to forgive our sins, to wipe them clean and throw them into the sea of forgetfulness. We don't believe that the bridegroom, God's heart is rejoicing, that his heart is exploding with joy over us because we feel like us. We feel like it's just another day and there's so much shame, there's so much condemnation, there's so much pain in our lives that distracts from the truths of the delight of God. Our name is Hephzibah emphasizes that the Lord delights in his people in spite of their immaturity and imperfect love and obedience. You know, when I look at my kids and they're, you know, four, seven, nine years old, I'm not looking at them and only enjoying them when they're doing everything perfectly. They're imperfect people. But the predominant feeling in my heart towards my own children is one of joy and gladness and delight. I've actually asked my kids in times of you know, discipline where we're talking through, like, hey, this is what you did. I asked them, what do you think about me? What do you think that I think about you? And their answers are so brutally honest. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's if we were to be honest before God, what does God think about me right now? What does he think about me on any given moment? Most of us would feel feelings of shame we would feel feelings of abandonment, anger towards the Lord. Do you know what the Lord calls that? He says, you believe that you're forsaken by me. You believe that you deserve to be forsaken by me, that I've already forsaken you or that I'm about to forsake you. That's where most, even Christians, live their life and their emotional conversation with the Lord. But he loves us in spite of our immaturity, in spite of our imperfect love. The revelation of the delight of God over our lives dynamically transforms us because it causes us to be confident in him. When you know that God rejoices over you and likes you, you'll actually come to him rather than running away from him in shame. You'll actually come to him. You'll draw near to him. When you know that someone likes you and they're in the room and they're like happy to see you and rejoicing over you, 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 you feel this magnetic pull towards that person, right? If someone is grumpy and angry at you, you're not like running up to them like, hey, give me a hug, what's up? No one does that. You wanna be with people that like you and delight in you and are happy to see you. And the same thing is true with the Lord. If we imagine that he is disappointed and that he's forsaken us and that he's just waiting, ooh, if you do this one more time, you're out. Then that changes the way in which we relate to God. The Lord says, no, you are Hephzibah. You are Hephzibah. Isaiah says that you will no longer be termed forsaken. The enemy wants that old name, forsaken, to take root in our hearts and in our minds. The name forsaken was the name that was, it was actually in a relational term, in a marital term, it was the name for a hopeless and desolate wife that had been left by her husband. He had left her and now she's completely abandoned. It speaks of a previous love, a previous joy, a previous delight, but now, look, you've been left. You're all alone. You're completely forsaken. You have no hope, especially in, in that culture. In the ancient time, if, if a woman was left from her husband, she was forsaken. She would often very, or very often enter into poverty and just a horrible quality of life. I mean, pretty bad. Many believers relate to God and others accordance with this old name, forsaken. You've been abandoned by the Lord. You're not good enough. You don't have your life together enough. Look at you. I mean, these are the voices that just bombard the mind and the heart of the believer over and over and over. And what are you gonna do? You're either going to agree with them 
and they're gonna wear you down or you're gonna do war with the scripture and take up the sword of the word of God, Ephesians 6, and you're gonna combat the lies and the accusation of the enemy. There's only two options. You're gonna agree, I am forsaken or I'm about to be forsaken in three days or you're gonna take up the word of God and make war on that lie and get your heart in agreement with the word of God. No, you're Hephzibah. You are the delight of God. You're the apple of his eye. You're this, his segula, his special treasure, his joy and his delight. Often that old name, forsaken, paragraph H, it serves as a relational framework. It becomes the primary conversational lens in our devotional lives with the Lord. We spend more time talking to the Lord about how he should forsake us for these reasons than we do delighting in the riches of the gospel made true to us through the word of God. We spend more time talking about our sin life than about Jesus's power and defeat of sin. We spend more time talking to the Lord about our brokenness than the power of Christ's healing that comes to us through the Holy Spirit in the cross. We spend, we spend more time complaining about brothers and sisters in Christ rather than praying for them, praying for ourselves, and looking unto Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Our devotional lives often are comprised of going in, trying to get up the courage to even appear before God because we feel so guilty, we feel so ashamed of the things that we've done that we neglect, we neglect the entire ocean called the love and the affection of God that's made available to us through the gospel. The Lord says, I wanna change the conversation with my people. I know how messed up you are, trust me. That's why I went to the cross. I'm actually so committed to removing your transgression that I sent my only son and he paid the price for all those sins. Do you know that? Do you know that the gospel is ever living and ever active day by day by day? It's not an event in the past. It's your present. It's your future. Look unto the cross of Jesus. He goes, I want to transform you. A friend of mine we were talking about this. A friend of mine, he said that the Lord spoke to him. And he said this. This is what the Lord said to him. He said, for 30 years, we've established that you have issues. It says that, you know, I'll finish the quote. He says, for 30 years, we have established that you have issues. I don't want to spend another year talking about it. pastoral insight, this is not at the expense of repentance and confession. Just, just throw that in there. The Lord wants to change the conversation with his people. He gets how messed up we are. And he gets how messed up your spouse is and your kids and your manager at work and your employees. Like, he really gets it. He so gets it that he created a cosmic plan called the new covenant whereby he would take on your mortal, weak flesh and mind and he would bleed and sweat and bear the wrath of God so that we don't have to make that the primary focal point of our conversations with him. He goes, there's a vast ocean called the riches of the knowledge of God, the beauty of my son, my delight in you, my redemptive plan, my purposes that are unfolding 150 chapters. He goes, I want you to get in on that plan. I wanna talk about the things that are on my heart. Your sin is not mostly the thing on my heart. It's there, I know it's there, but that's not mostly what I wanna talk about with you. The Lord establishes his delight in us through the victory of the cross. The enemy would have us to call, draw back from Jesus because of shame. Even in this hour, there are many who are, they're, they're wrapped up in so many different conversations. They're beginning to back away from the Lord and that first level, they don't even realize it. 
They're backing away from that first love. They're backing away from those truths and their messages that they walked in five and 10, 15 years ago or even a year ago, but they're backing away from it. Their heart's getting a little bit more bitter. They're getting a little bit more resentful. They're getting a little bit more irritable. They're more likely to lash out in their conversation a little bit more. That's a dangerous place to be. The Lord breaks off shame from his people by establishing them in the revelation of his delight. It's made available through the victory. He says in verse three, look at this, down in verse three, he says, you will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now the crown was a sign of victory. It's a sign that, that he overcame and he secured the victory. And he says, that's you. You are my victory. The diadem is a sign of his royalty and his right to rule. And the Lord establishes both so that we become the recipients of his delight. Let's look at this. The crown of glory. It's a crown of beauty. Literally, it means a crown of beauty. And the crown was the visible statement of the king's victory and honor. Christ won the redeemed through the victory of a perfect life, enduring the cross and defeating the power of sin and death. And then he took you and put him on his head, put him in his hand, and he's gonna show it to the nations and say, look, they are my crown of victory. Did you ever think about that? That God wants to use you as a, a trophy of his grace, a trophy of his victory, a trophy of his redemptive love. Not as a statement of how pious and pure you are, not what you can do in your human weakness and frailty. Our, we, our love is so weak in the natural, but the Lord says, I have called them to be a crown in my hand and the nations and the principalities and powers and all the demons and all the angels, they're gonna look at my people, the church, and they're gonna go, you have secured the victory and I delight in them and I love them. Think about what God, what Christ could put on his resume the things that he's done, the things he can do, what he's capable of. I mean, he did Genesis chapter one. He could just go, Genesis one, put it on his crown. But no, he inscribes your name there and he says, you are the sign of my victory. That's how much I delight in you. I spun the stars and the planets and the heavens. I stretched out the heavens like a curtain. I hold the nations in the palm of my hand. They're like a drop in the bucket to me. I have all power, all wisdom, all my. But he doesn't say all that. He says, my people, the Hephzibah people, are the crown of my victory. They're the statement. And you need to remember that over your own life. Remember that you're the statement of God's victory and his delight. And you need to remember that for other Christians, that they are the statement of God's victory and delight, even when they come up short, even when they mistreat you, even when they speak wrong things and do wrong things, they are the crown of his delight. They are Hephzibah. The royal diadem, excuse me, is the crown jewel that displays his right to rule. Listen to this, Revelation 5, 9, you've heard this verse before, but I want you to connect with something in this. Revelation 5, 9, they're singing the song about the lamb, who is Jesus, who takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father. And the scroll is the title deed to the earth. It's his right to rule the nations. Hear this, they sang a new song. You're worthy, that's the key word, to take the scroll and to open its seals, why? Why is Jesus worthy to take the title deed to the earth and open the seals of judgment that are his action plan to rule the earth? Why is he worthy? Because, or for, you were slain. 
because he laid down his life, because he went to Calvary, because he endured the cross, because he demonstrated the sacrificial love of God, because he bore the wrath of the Father, he's worthy to rule. He says, you're a diadem because you're the symbol of my royal right to rule. I purchased you because I delighted in you. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. You're a diadem in the hand of the Lord. He will display his people openly and publicly because he delights in them and he's not ashamed of them. There's so much shame that hangs over the heart of the body of Christ individually, corporately. There is so much shame and that shame is increasing, increasing, increasing in the culture. The Lord says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of the ones that I've purchased with my royal blood. I'm not ashamed. There'll be a crown to me. There'll be a diadem to me. Listen to this, Hebrews 2.11. He says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. When he looks at the body of Christ, he says, I am not ashamed to call you my brothers and be a part of my family. I'm not ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of you? Are you ashamed of those in the body of Christ? Hebrews 11, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He's not ashamed of us. Why? Because he's going to secure the victory. His redemptive plan, no one's gonna glory. We're, we're waiting for this Christian leader to rise up who has the redemptive plan and like leads us in and that guy's not gonna come out. It's not gonna happen. Because that's Jesus and he goes, I am going to get the glory of the nations and I'm gonna bring you in and you're gonna be wearing, guess what? Robes of humility behind me. And I'm gonna show everybody I'm gonna show the whole world, I'm gonna show all the ages of my power and the, my redemptive love and my hefsible heart towards my people that I have redeemed. Oh, it's glorious. It's so sure. It's going to happen. No one can stop it. No one can slow him down. He is the king of kings. He will trod the nations as the wide press. He will have a perfected bride. He will release his power. He will bring in the great harvest of souls. He will make his church ready. It's coming. Amen. Let's stand. Brenton and the worship team, why don't you come out? We're called to experience the emotions of God and to delight in him as he delights in us. It doesn't happen automatically. He doesn't make us do it. You don't just wake up one day delighting in God. You have to take small steps of faith towards him. You believe this about me? Is this really true? It gets into your prayer life. It gets into your thought life. It gets into your conversations, redemptive conversations with friends and spouses and children. You tell them what is true, even when you don't feel it. You tell yourself, you look in the mirror in the morning. And rather than making a checklist of all the things that are forsaken, even in the natural, we, we declare the truth, I am your delight. I am your delight. I want Bible verses to come to my mind when I look in the mirror. I wanna see what God sees. I wanna feel what God feels about me. You are his special treasure. This is a foundational piece that the Lord, he's put it right in the middle of our community. He's emphasized it over and over and over again. The truth of Hephzibah, it's what sustains our core mission of day and night prayer. Beauty of God, the delight of God, this is who we are. Just put out your hands before the Lord if you'd like to. Holy Spirit, we ask that we would see what you see. 
that we would feel what you feel. Hefzibah, that's your name. That's your new name. You are no longer forsaken. You're not the sum of all your victories. You're not the sum of all your failures. You're not the sum of your gifts or your talents or how much you contribute in the kingdom and in the workplace and in your home. You are not the sum of those things. The Father says, you are Hephzibah and my delight is in you and I will not be talked out of it. Stop arguing with me. Let me win. Let me break down the walls of your heart that you've put up because of fear and shame and let the water of my redemptive love touch your heart and refresh you even in this hour. Hefzibah, we delight in you, Lord. We delight in you, Lord. Is there anyone in the room that would like to respond to the Lord? Say, I want that fresh touch of the delight of God upon my life. I want to feel the joy, God's joy over me. I want to feel His delight upon my heart again. I'm setting myself. I'm signing up again. I'm going to prioritize. I'm going to go after that first love reality. I'm going to touch the heart of God, all that He would have for me in this life. Hefzibah. I want to invite you to come up to the front. As a statement before the Lord, come and stand on these lines. Say, here I am, God. I'm Hephzibah. I don't always believe it. I don't always know it. But I know it's true because your word says it's true. Transform me. Touch my heart. You like me. You enjoy me. You love me. You've always loved me. You like me. Have our ministry team come up. Leaders, friendship group leaders. Leaders at the missions base, come up and begin to lay hands on those. We love you, Jesus. You delight in us. You are for us. You are the bridegroom, God. We are the subjects of your delight. Termed forsaken, you are Hephzibah. You are the delight of the Lord. You're the crown of His victory. You are His treasure. says the Lord, 